I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Ruler Podcast. Now, if you ask a group of football fans to name the greatest ever player in the history of the game, you start an argument that can last for days, or certainly however long you manage to stay in the pub. Cycling fans have it harder, because those discussions pretty much always start and end with the name of a certain Belgium. So it is that the first two inductees to the Ruler Hall of Fame at this year's classic event in London will be Eddie Merckx and the legendary Beryl Burton. This won't stop the arguments entirely, of course. Podcast regular Brian Holm of Quickstep agrees with the choice, but thinks there's one current pro who's a definite for inclusion in the future. I mean, it could be good discussion, you know, who was the best ever, you know, it can be a long discussion. We can say who got the hour record and uh, who won the most stages in Tour de France. Uh, that's easy to say, but the best ever, of course, Eddie Merckx, coolest ever. But for his generation, the best all-rounder, you know, is probably Sagan. And he probably make it a top, top 10 best cyclist ever. So we'll bear that in mind for next year. Author and journalist Will Fotheringham wrote a book about Merckx, Half Man, Half Bike. But he says the title of The Greatest Ever is really a two-up sprint. It is the great debate, isn't it? I mean, you know, the it was Jacques Godet who who essentially raised the question of whether Merckx or Coppi was the greatest. And his view was that in terms of pure results, Merckx was the greatest. But in terms of the other things that he brought to the party, Coppi was probably the greatest. So I would personally be quite split because, like I say, I, I would probably go along with Godet and say, you know, in terms of impact over a long, long time... Because obviously Merckx's impact has continued since he retired. He's continued to be Eddie Merckx. He's continued to be the most prolific winner the sport has ever seen. No one has matched him and no one is ever going to get near him, that's for sure. Um, so obviously in those terms, you can't argue against Merckx, but you can make a case for copy, I think, in terms of what he represented to a particular nation at a particular time, what his personal story stands for and how it can be translated you know how you can look at it and how you can tell that story you know there is it's it's a question i think of how you measure a champion that's what it boils down to and it was the breadth of his wins as well wasn't it because he won you know the grand tours but he won the the classics he, he basically won everything he turned up for well, really, it was it was he? the famous barry hoban quote that if you waved a flag mercs would sprint for it it wouldn't matter what the flag was whether it was a 10 pound premium at the top of a you know, at the top of the street in a tiny little commess, you know, somewhere that he was 
supposedly riding for training, Mercs would compete for absolutely anything. It was a cultural thing. It was the way they were in the 70s. I mean, I think if you talk to Roger de Vlamink, you find that de Vlamink was pretty much the same. The other guys of that era, Freddie Martins, um, Henny Kuiper, they were all in that mould. Bernard Hino to some extent as well. I mean, again, there's a question, you know, would you... Would you put Hino as one of, you know, where would you rank Hino alongside Merckx? That's a very interesting question because Hino's, Hino's Palmyra certainly stands up very, very well. And of course, uh, Eddie Merckx had the advantage over Fausto Coppi that his uh, career wasn't interrupted by world war in the middle of it. And one of the great debates about Coppi, I guess, is what would he have gone on to do? What could he have done in his career had the yeah, war I, not intervened? I think this is, this is part of the whole thing with Coppi is that Coppi's career is open to all sorts of questions there is the war there is his personal life there are all those there's all those backstories that you simply haven't got with Merckx with Merckx what you've got is a very simple cycling story bloke got on bike bloke was very good at bike racing bloke rode bike and raced bike and won lots and lots of bike races it's a very simple story whereas copy is much more complex I mean on a on a human level it's much much more interesting and on a cultural level it's much much more interesting but obviously if you're looking at you know the absolute you know the, the thing with Merckx is it's a very simple one to measure you you look at the wind you go five two five that is it it's simple Hit, copy it's far more complicated far more nuanced when you look at film of Merckx in the 70s you, you, you've kind of forgotten now having seen him now um quite what a star he was he was he was like a Belgian beetle, really, wasn't he? He was, yeah, a, he mean, was a real pop star. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the parallel would be with, um, you know, the parallel I always like to draw is Elvis Presley. I, I think Merckx looks like the young Presley, you know, those lovely sideboards, and he has got that charisma, he's got that way of moving, he's got that, you know, that, that lovely, elegant aura about him, which, of course, is paradoxical, because obviously, you know, as, as, I, as I wrote in the book, you know, he's inside, he was deeply insecure, and that's actually why he why he wanted to win all those bike races, because he had this constant need to remind himself of his own worth. As with Coppy, with Merckx, there are some question marks over his, uh, over his doping history. He failed two or three tests, I think, didn't he, over in, in his career. Uh, that doesn't seem to have affected his, um, uh, affected his reputation in any way. No, I don't think it should. I think we have to look at these guys in the context of their time. And I think, yeah, that's, that's how we have to look at it. We have to say, what was the time in which they operated? The time in which they operated was different. It wasn't, it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't an era like today when, you know, there is so much scrutiny. There is, you know, there's so much cultural awareness of these things. And I just, I just think you have to look at the guys in their context and leave it at that, really. And the other thing about that time was the, the versatility of the riders, the fact that you wouldn't concentrate the entire season on one or two grand tours you would go for everything and that's i guess that's one of the reasons why there will never be another mercs in terms of the spread of the wins yeah there will probably i mean the only thing you could look at in terms of comparison is in terms of the variety of the wins of a particular rider um which is why it's interesting to look at sir bradley wiggins and note that the guy you know won races on the road he won the tour de france he won you know, and he won X number of medals on the track. He won the Madison. He won the Pursuit. That's a very interesting all-round record. He needed to win a cyclocross and a classic, ideally. Um, but no, it's with Merckx. What is interesting is that as everything he rode, he wanted to win, and they rode everything. I mean, I'm not, 
you know, on the track in particular, he was very, very prolific on the track. And, you know, in terms of Kermesse races, they went and rode Kermesse races and they didn't ride them for training. They rode them to win because, as again, as de Vlamic told me, if you went, you know, more than three days without a win... In Belgium in the 70s, the press started asking questions, saying, oh, my God, is, you know, is Roger in decline? Is Merckx in decline? He hasn't won since Thursday. So who would you put in next year? Who would be the second inductee? Oh, I think, I think it would probably be Fausto Coppi. I, th- I think, in, obviously, in terms of Palmares, Bernardino is, is superior, Jacques Anquetil is superior, Miguel Indurain, not so sure. Let's, let's, that, that's a very, another very interesting area because Indurain is in that, in that modern era of specialist champions um so no it would it would have to be it would have to be copy i think simply because of what he represented and because of his entire hinterland and we'll be speaking to isabel best um who's uh, written a book about women's uh, cycle racing including beryl burton uh, in a little while but um for the first female inductee would you agree with beryl burton yeah totally because i think the thing about beryl is that her record stands comparison with athletes in lots and lots of other sports purely because there are very few champions in any sport who have that longevity. I think like Coppy, you have to look at her Palmares and say, well, what are the limitations here? There was no Olympics. There weren't many there weren't many events at the World Championships. There was no, you know, the women couldn't ride the Commonwealth Games. The, you know, the, there was no Women's Tour de France. There was an awful lot of stuff that she couldn't do. But what she could do, she did outrageously well at, and she did it over this absurdly long time frame, which you know would have defied most athletes in in most registers. I mean, I'd say there's there's a very strong case with Beryl for saying that she's she's one of the greatest champions in any sport of any time. I think her talent has gone woefully unrecognised. Well, when it came to choosing the first woman to enter the Hall of Fame, really there was one standout candidate, the extraordinary Beryl Burton. At seven world titles, 90 British championships and records which stood for decades. Isabel Best is the author of Queens of Pain, the story of women's cycle racing from the 1890s to the 1990s, which is published by Rafa in October. Uh, Isabel joins us from Paris. Isabel, um, Beryl Burton really was one of a kind, wasn't she? Oh, I mean, yeah. Yes, she was just, uh, it, you know, it's funny, actually, my chapter that I wrote on her was, is in, was in some ways the hardest to write because um, she was just so, so phenomenal. You know, you can't really talk about her without resorting to hyperbole. So, you know, it's just, it, it sort of gets to a point where where the things that she achieved, it's a it sort of almost becomes meaningless because it's it's that thing of the numbers being so extreme. You know, she won uh, 96 national titles. I mean, just think about that for a second, 96. <laughs> you know, when most writers would be extremely happy just to win one. She won the, the um, best all-rounder record, which, um, uh, you know, I, I don't know how many listeners are, are, are familiar with that, but it's... Um, it's the, uh, you know, it's 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 based on the best um, uh, times in three categories of time trial that you do in the course of the whole season. So, um, for women, it's twenty five miles, fifty miles, and hundred miles. Um, and what's significant about that is that uh, you can do a blinding time trial one week, but then you know maybe later in the season you're you're a bit knackered, and you know someone else might might improve your time. Um, but uh, with the best all rounder, you have to be at the top of your form the whole way through the season because someone might pip you and then you've got to you've got to improve on that anyway she won that uh 25 years in succession 
she broke a man's record most famously um and not in you know not in any kind of like little thing but you know in the 12 hour time trial um and not only that but uh it was a record of nine years standing and not only that but the guy that she overtook mike mcnamara was one of the top riders who was on the on the way to breaking the men's record himself you know it was his his great moments of his career <laughs> and there she was overtaking him one of the legends about her was that when she did overtake mike mcnamara um she offered him a licorice all sort is that story actually true or is that part of a myth i think it is true i mean there's a, there's a lovely picture in um in her autobiography of uh, one of the many awards that she was given at some some event where where he was there and she was handed a sort of giant licorice all sort of memento. Well, she says in her autobiography she did it, so I think we have to trust her. But um, I think she was famous for these kind of little quips um, when she passed riders. But there was one rider where she passed and she said, uh, hey, up, lad, you're not trying. <laughs> I think she had a good sense of humour. I think she was possibly a little bit uh she liked to put people in their place as well maybe but um you know uh you know she says in her autobiography that she felt really bad about overtaking McNamara because she realized it was a it was a key moment in his career and she was overtaking him and she sort of describes it as though she's sort of slightly hesitating about whether she should actually do it or not and she's like oh, and then she obviously it's like oh, you know the old barrel comes back and she's like, of course I'm going to overtake him. <laughs> she was very much an amateur, wasn't she? She was, she effectively, she was an agricultural worker for, for most of her life and, and she got no support from uh, the British cycling authorities really at all and it was just her and her husband. She couldn't have done it without her husband, that is absolutely for certain because he did a lot of the care and the childminding with, with her daughter and, you know, there, as you said, there was no money so she would go to the World Championships uh, and she would have to pay her way and, there are all these stories of, of Charlie going to help her because there's like there was no support in terms of soigneurs or mechanics or anything like that. So Charlie did all of that. So I think Denise would be like shipped off to her grandmother. And then there's one story of Charlie going, I think, on, uh, with a friend, a friend who had a, a scooter and they're like going across the Alps on, on this tiny motor scooter so they can get to a race that, that, that Charlie can support Beryl. I mean, it was that kind of that kind of um, stuff all the way through. Because she never enjoyed the best of health, really, throughout her life, did she? That's the other extraordinary thing. Um, she was quite poorly as a child, and, and, and she had uh, slightly questionable health throughout her life. Yeah, she had this terrible uh, illness when she was 11. I mean, she describes it as a nervous breakdown. Um, it was triggered, or it, se it seems to have been related to, um, uh, it, or it certainly occurred around the time that she had her 11-plus exams. The exams went really badly, and uh, she she basically had been very confident at school, and then she just had a panic attack in the exams, and um, and just completely flunked them. And she she just considered this such a humiliation, and I think that must have been some that must have been related to this illness that triggered it. Um, anyway, she was desperately ill, um, and was away from her family for about a year. Um, and, uh, and then when she recovered, her doctor said, uh, you know, on no account should you do any sport, you know, you've got to take it easy now. I think it was, um, a possibility that it could have damaged the heart. Um, so there was that concern, you know, that that was why they didn't want her doing sport. Her daughter, Denise, will be accepting the award on her behalf because Beryl passed away in 1996. Um, Denise and Beryl had, uh, uh to put it mildly, a slightly difficult relationship, didn't they? When I was talking to Denise um, about her mum, it was quite, you know, that I think from the age of nine, I think she said that her mum 
cycled with her to the grandmother's house. She was going to go and spend the weekend at the grandmother's and Beryl rode with her um, to show her the way. And then, and then she had to ride back. And then, and then, and then Beryl and Charlie went off for the weekend to do some race. And and uh, and then Denise would have to ride her own way back. And from then on, she had to do that all on her own. And she was nine. And I still think, well, maybe people just did that then. But I still think, I don't know whether parents would really do that now. And so your nine-year-old daughter off the grandparents on a bicycle, um, you know, when you don't have mobile phones and all that stuff. Anyway, I think, but I think the part, the real, uh, you know, I think, the, so I think, I think Denise was slightly, maybe, you know, didn't get the same the attention that she probably needed as a child. Um, I mean, I think she got a lot from her dad, but I think it was just, you know, both it was really everything focused around about around Beryl's racing, um, and then Denise became this really great cyclist herself. Um, and then and then it got to a point where Denise started winning races against her mum, and uh, and then there's this a famous story of the of the national championships um, in 1976 where she won the race, and it was a, it was a, it came down to a final sprint, and there were three riders. Beryl and Denise were two of them, and Denise pipped Beryl to the post, and uh, and famously uh, Beryl refused to shake her hand on the podium, um, and it was this sort of terrible, terrible moment. Um, and uh, I was talking to Denise about it, and she said her mum was very supportive of her cycling until she started beating her. But she said the problem was that the national and she'd beat her mum in other races, but the problem was that this national championships was in Yorkshire. You know, Yorkshire was, it just meant everything to, to Beryl. And, uh, you know, so it's on home turf. Um, and, but she said that her mum was like trying to cycle out before the race even started. So, um, they were, uh, on the, so the, the morning when they were going to head over there, uh, Beryl wouldn't let Denise get in the car. <laughs> And uh, so Denise was like, okay, well, um, can you take my wheels? And she's like, no. <laughs> so Denise had to ride like the 20 miles uh, to Harrogate where the race was whilst carrying her, her race wheels. <laughs> Beryl effectively accused Denise of sitting on a wheel and not doing any work, didn't they? And they didn't speak for years, did they? Well, Denise actually said they just never talked about it after that. They just like, they just got on with their lives and, you know, sort of um, guess you know slightly kind of British stiff upper lip thing and I mean that's the other story with Beryl is that um she was this phenomenally powerful rider but she did have she did have her sort of Achilles Achilles heel and one of them was that she wasn't a good sprinter I think she wasn't particularly good tactically I mean she won loads of road races but I don't think she really understood the tactics of racing so well I mean her 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 strategy was just to to ride out really hard and drop everyone you know in her autobiography she talks about how frustrated she was about she felt that she lost she was the moral victor of so many races where um people just sat on her wheel the whole way through the race and then out sprinted her at the finish and so I think that was part of her bitterness uh towards Denise as well that you know she'd out sprinted her um, at the end, and she'd just done the same as all the other riders. But we see this all the time with really strong riders. It's like, well, how many, you know, they don't have that many options, do they? Especially, you know, when you're a moving target and everyone, you know, everyone's got their eyes on you. You know, it's like you're kind of quite limited in, in what you can do. I mean, there, there's stories of her. Um, she got so fed up at one point that um, uh, Bernadette Malvin, uh, who's from the family of um, cyclists called there's a huge cycling dynasty the Swinnertons and um, anyway she 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 raced against Beryl at one point and she told me the story about her getting so fed up with all these riders sitting on her wheel so she just slammed the brakes on at one point <laughs> and caused this accident behind her because she just had had enough of everyone just sitting on her wheels and out sprinting her so um you know it was a, a I think she got increasingly better about that as she got older 
especially she was lost quite a few. She felt she lost quite a few world championship um, medals as because of because of that the sit on sprinters. Isabel Best, whose book Queens of Pain is out next month. And Eddie Merckx and Denise Burton will be at the Ruler Classic in London, November the 1st to 3rd. Check online for full details and how to buy tickets. Now, if there's a Hall of Fame for cycling kit, there's little doubt that Eddie's Maltini jersey would be in there. But what else would make the cut? If only we had someone with a deep knowledge of the sport and an understanding of the mixture of the aesthetic and the technical, which makes truly great kit. But we don't, so we'll make do with Ruler's desire editor, Stuart Clapp. Yeah, the Maltini jersey would definitely be in there, um, even though it's the colour of an Austin Allegro. Um, but yeah, without without a shadow of a doubt, that is uh, that is a classy jersey. In fact, a lot of that era is uh, th- there are a lot of iconic jerseys from from that era, and a lot with Mercs especially. But I Brooklyn. Chewing gum. Oh, the Roger de Vlaminck, Brooklyn. Yeah, absolutely. That's that is a proper classic. I mean, it it, it it's just cool. And Roger de Vlaminck's cool. If you watch Sunday in Hell, he he look, he look like he looks like he could be in a band rather than than a cyclist. But no, he, you know that that is the coolest jersey, I think, possibly of all time. I've got a cupboard full of uh, Mappe kit. And um, I can sometimes go out looking like a fat Franco Bellarini. Where do you stand on Mappe? No, oh, oh, that kit's awesome. Yeah, why? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I wouldn't worry about going out look, looking like like a, a fat version of anyone. It's all about the attitude, I think, with that, that kit. But no, it's, that's terrific kit. Because a lot of people don't like it. I haven't met anyone who doesn't like it, and I'll I'll arm wrestle uh, anyone who doesn't like it, and I will lose the arm wrestle. But yeah, I love that kit. That's great. So moving on to the more modern stuff, would you, is there any sort of current or very recent jerseys or kit that you put in the uh, Hall of Fame? Do you know, I really, at the Ruler Classic last year, when they unveiled the EF Energy thingy, right, when they un- unveiled that kit, I thought that was a, pre- that was a hit because it's, it's pretty out there, isn't it? If you, when you see it in the bunch, there's no mistaking which you know, which team that is, you know, that, that bright pink pock octal they've got as well. I think that combined with helmet and everything else is a really cool looking kit. Um, but I think if you go back a little way, I think there's, there's been, there's been some absolute bangers. I actually really like the sky kit. The first year they, they, they did team sky went to Castelli. Really cool looking kit. I thought that, that was cool. Um, but I think another, another one would be, um, Cervelo testing kit. I love that kit. That that was cool. I think it, because it it was sort of in that monotone, uh, you know, sort of black and white with a little bit of red on it. And I think that that I mean it was quite a cool team anyway, wasn't it? Look look at the lineup on that. And that's it. And Hausler wore it. So that's that's actually enough for me. That was the kit with the little E's on the shoulder, wasn't it? You could always spot them in the peloton. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that that kit. I I, I have that kit, and we 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 were discussing because I I do a ride every Friday and I call it Free Wheel Friday, and we go out and there there are rules to Free Wheel Friday where you can't go over twenty miles an hour. Uh, going on the front is by invite only. Um, there there are small rules and you have to abide by these rules. But I was wondering whether we should like do every so often do one that's that's full pro kit, 
And if it is, I would definitely wear my uh, Cervelo Test Team kit. If you're going to widen it out to include just not kit, um, but equipment and uh, that sort of stuff as well, um, what would you include? C- can I um, have Reynolds 531 and the original Oakley factory pilot glasses? Oh, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that that would that would totally be in there. I think uh, what, what else we got? I, I suppose you you could. I mean, a fairly obvious one, and this is probably going to sound quite cliche, but uh, Campag Delta brakes that um, didn't didn't really work, and they were quite heavy, but um, they were. Uh, that, but they they didn't they look great? Style over function. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which is which is how how uh, I like to go cycling, really. Now you're off to Austria next week i'm not you're off to austria uh, next week uh, for the world championships with your new best friends in austria yeah they they are they are my best friends they are uh, well I, I, a few podcasts ago I'll, I'll fill you in on the backstory i went to uh, vienna and stayed with a brilliant unicorn bbuc brilliant unicorn and uh, i stayed at their hotel and uh, we kept in touch and they sort of they said they they're doing um, a pop up in a bar on, on the side of the course. Uh, they said, why don't you guys come over and share the space with us and have this as a base for, for, for the week? So, yeah, uh, by the time this, this goes out, I'll probably be there, so, or, or packing at least. If anyone listening is going there, I'd get on that and go. Because and I, and I saw on Twitter yesterday someone had tweeted Ian, our executive editor at Ruler, saying, I'm a Ruler subscriber. Will I get anything if I go and Ian offered us buy him a pint? So uh, I, I would tweet Ian first and, uh, and let him know you're coming. He'll, he'll have them lined up on the bar. But, yeah, it should be, should be a great week. I can't wait. I've never been to a World Champs before. So the drinks are on you all next week then? Uh, Ian, definitely Ian. Um, yeah, definitely speak to Ian about that. But, uh, yeah, we'll, yeah we'll, we'll be there. It'll be great. It'll be great fun. We, um, I think there's, like, daily rides and... A few of our uh, ruler friends will be about as well, so it will be it will be a great week. I'm going to pack some Alka Seltzer, and that's it from this podcast. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. <laughs>